Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. So I want to I want to talk to you a little bit um, tonight. I'm, I'm trying to chill it out a little bit, so I got the stool out because uh, I think you relax a little bit better. And um, uh, I, I want to do a little bit of constructing tonight. We we had a we've done some discussing among the leadership that um, you know we we've been on a long journey of deconstruction, which I appreciate for some people. Uh, it has a measure of irrelevance because you were never constructed in the way that we were constructed and therefore needed deconstructing. But uh, I do know that in the context of who we are as a house, there are lots of things that have needed to be taken apart, uh, some for the few and some for the many, uh, but so that we can move forward. But I was thinking today, what's interesting is, it just popped into my head that if you remove the con... From deconstruction, what you're left with is destruction. And uh, con in the context of a word means connected. So a con sequence is a connected sequence. So, um, you know, construction is a connection of things that, that structure something. And, um, and so if, 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 we, if we don't grasp and understand the connective process of life and of thought and of belief, which we've tried to deal with, um, then what can happen is we can be left with destruction. And I appreciate that some of what we have been teaching and some of the things we have been challenging have been destructive to some people. And that's because those people, and I just use those in the broader sense, uh, have not appreciated how things are connected were connected, must be connected, and so truth becomes destructive rather than constructive. Now, of course, if you take the con out of structure, you're left with structure, and I don't know what that is anyway. So, so even in our structuring, we have to appreciate that there are some things we have to connect. Okay? And connections are, are very important, and, uh, and that's why we're teaching the way we're teaching. That's why we're thinking the way we're thinking. These are not abstract, radical processes of thought, these are connected processes of thought that are trying to help us move forward to where God wants us to be. Now, I, I, we, we also talked about the fact that um, within the deconstruction, we, we have to start doing some construction, and I, I agree with that, and um, some of uh, what I've been sharing on a Saturday night has been influenced by that thinking as we've, we've talked about God's involvement in our life and God going before us and all those kind of things to, to lift our spirits to understand that we're not alone and, um, and there is something going on. And um, uh, within that construction thing, I, I said something on, on Saturday that I hope you grasp and I hope you get the image in your mind because I talked about how the conductor stands at the front of the orchestra doing this. And uh, he's not randomly doing that because he's like, he has a thing about, I like to do this. He's, he's actually reading from a score. And um, uh, a good conductor is not getting the orchestra to play music because any idiot can do that. 
because the orchestra have all got their music in front of them. So any Dumbo who doesn't even know anything about music can stand up and say, play what's on the sheet. So why does this guy stand there doing this? Because it's not about them playing music, it's about the interpretation of the music. It's about what the music means and what the music needs to say. So all the nuances are created by the conductor because he, is, he has a sense of what the music is saying, what's the story within the music. How should all this blend to make it a symphony rather than a noise? And so I've had that image going on in my mind that, and I want you to put that image deep in there that as you say, where, where is God involved in my life? That's where God is involved in your life, okay? He's like the divine conductor who knows there's a sheet of music, but he's bringing out the flavor, he's bringing out the, the feeling, he's bringing out the nuances so that the sound that comes out, which is the expression of our life, the things that happen in our life, uh, become a, you know, a beautiful sound of, of the kingdom of God in the earth. So, so I want to show you something um, now before I read you something that I wrote today. Um, this is a very interesting thing on the screen because it, it's, it's a series of dots and I want you to have a look at it if you can put it up there, Phil. Okay, what do you, what do you see happening there? Don't, anybody who knows the answer because I've told you, try and be a bright spark, right? What do you see? How many of you see a, a, a circle made up of dots going round and round in the wheel? Well, actually, that's not what's happening. What I want you to do is just pick one dot. Just pick one dot, any dot, and watch what that dot is doing. And maybe you can see what that one dot is doing. What's that one dot doing? It's just going... Every one of those individual dots is doing the same thing. So if you switch, if you change to another dot and look at that dot, you'll see it's doing the same thing on a different line. However, when we look at that, you would say what's happening there is there is a circle of dots that are rotating within a wider wheel, which is actually not true. So my point being this, that, that when we look at something like this, often what we see is not what is real. Our interpretation of what we see is not necessarily the truth. And this is an interesting thing. I, I could give you another 20, 30 of these that illustrate to us that even, even in the context of science, that we have to understand that just seeing something in its raw form does not necessarily show you what is really happening and what the truth is about that thing. So we have approached Scripture and Revelation and started where we started for that reason because this can happen in your theology. It can happen in your faith. It can happen in your understanding. It can happen in your belief to where you'll swear blind that what you're seeing is a circle of dots going round within a wheel when actually nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing is going around anything. In fact, all the movement is on straight lines. Nothing's going around anything. So it's an illusion to think that anything's going around there and yet no matter how many times you look at it, you see it going around and around and it's not the truth. That's not what's happening. So I hope that helps you to see why, why we find it important to have a re-look at, at what formulates our belief and how we have perceived our belief and how we've looked at God to appreciate that this does happen and we have to get focused on the one dots, all the one dots, 
and see what is the line that these one dots are doing because they're showing me something that is not real. But if I can find what is real, I'll understand the problem. So, so part of our, our journey of doing what we're doing is connected very, very uh, deeply to little things like that. Okay, so in view of that, I want to read you something that I wrote today. I'll read it because I think it's better that I read it than than just go freelance because it's helped me to clarify the thought. But um, So let me read this to you. Listen carefully to this. Um, One of the reasons for this is that um, I I was never I was never introduced to ancient world culture. So I was taught the Bible, read the Bible, interpreted the Bible from here looking back. Um, which meant that, that however much you tried, and really we didn't care anyway, but you would look at it from a Western, a white Western mindset, uh, living in the 20th or the 21st century, and interpreting what you read through the lens of how you understand culture to be now and how people see things, which, which of course really is, I mean, it's foolish in one sense. Now, um, the, the miracle for me is that in spite of that, in spite of that, uh, God has revealed himself and we, we have understood something about Jesus and about the gospel and in spite of that, okay? But when you become aware of that, it, it becomes very interesting because the interpretation of truth in scripture has to change because of your understanding of the cultures in which it was happening. And, and um, there, there are some... Some uh, things that are very prominent in, in modern Christianity, particularly in evangelical circles, which would be kind of the roots that we come from, which, which have developed purely out of superimposing Western thinking onto ancient concepts. And one of those we've talked about a lot, which is which is the, what, what is known as the penal substitutionary atonement theory, which is that, that we were all, that, that, that we are depraved from the beginning, um, that we were born in sin, and that, that God's anger had to be satisfied, his justice must be fulfilled, so he had to judge us. The only way he could deal with that is for a, a blood sacrifice, so God killed his son so that he could let us go, um, but somehow God couldn't get rid of his anger and somehow God couldn't forgive us unless he killed somebody. And of course, as you start to look at that, and again, we've talked at length about this, you can then superimpose that over all the stories of Scripture to think it looks real, like the dots. Okay? But when you start pulling the individual dots that you thought were going round on a certain process of thought, you realise actually they are on a line. They're going in a straight line. They're, they're showing a path. Each one is showing a path that creates a picture, but if you understand what the, the dot is doing, it creates the path. So, hence the reason that was just, I wanted to lay that in there so that I could read you this. So, so listen to this. In the ancient world, for the most part, deities were the only way by which phenomenon could be explained. Everything from a storm at sea to a failed harvest to the loss of a loved one to the inability for a woman to conceive, to murder of a brother, was put down to the gods. It was into this world and against this backdrop that the Bible narrative was written and developed. 
It makes sense to say, therefore, that the images portrayed within the pages of Scripture are using those ideals to shape the way its message is delivered. In other words, it spoke the language of the day to the people of the day. Understanding that helps us to see that, for example, Genesis 1 is describing a pattern and a process that speaks to the world of the day in the language of the day. Therefore, the probability of it attempting to prescribe the exact detail of how the physical universe came into being is most likely not the primary objective. Because of the way the deities were perceived and the degree of commonality of practice across most ancient cultures, the text conveys a much more important meaning than how the earth was made. Here's the developed model in how people perceived and provided for the God or the gods to which Genesis 1 attaches itself. Construct a temple befitting the status of the God, deck it out with everything that reflects his power, wisdom, ability, beauty and will. Lastly, put the constructed image of your God in the temple you have built and let him rule from and through there. That's exactly what is described as happening in Genesis 1. As it replicates the common model in a way that would be clear to the eyes of the ancients. Creation was the temple. And the image placed in the temple was humankind. Do you remember? God created the earth, six days, the temple's being built... And then they would understand the last thing you do is you put the image of the God into the temple. Well, what happened on day six? And then God made man, how? In his image and in his likeness and he put him into the temple. So the glory of this God was in the man in the temple that he had created. In ancient culture, the creation story would have been connected to the construction of a temple. Do you see that? And the God is placed in it. The image of the God is the last thing placed in the temple. That's exactly what is described as happening in Genesis 1, as it replicates the common model in a way that would be clear to the eyes of the ancients. Creation was the temple, and the image placed in the temple was humankind. It was clearly revealing that there is a God on the scene who is different. Who rules with and not over humanity. Who looks for partners, not slaves. Who blesses because of love rather than demands because of sovereign power. Who fellowships with rather than lording over. And so the gospel, the good news, begins its trajectory of love and ultimately reconciliation for the whole world, not at the cross, but in creation. There the world becomes the temple, and we the image of God, to now, where we become the temple, in which God himself dwells. This is why, how many of you ever did a dot to dot as a kid? Do you remember, usually Christmas, you got the books with the dot to dot, join the dots in. And the whole idea was that to see the image, you had to join the dots. It wasn't a book that you picked up, saw all the dots, and then drew on it what the heck you wanted. 
That was not the point. The point was, I will provide you with the dots and I will number the dots. And you now join the dots, one, two, three, four, five, six, those lines, you join the dots, keep your eye on the dot, join the dots, and then the dot will give you an image. But it's like, along comes the church and we decide somehow that we're going to pick up um, our Sharpie and we're going to draw God as we think God should be. So we finish up drawing a giraffe whose neck reaches to the heavens uh, rather than a lion to rule the land. We finish up with the wrong picture, the wrong image and I guarantee you that that is what has happened with the image of God. So this is why when we look at what I've just read to you about creation, which many of you will have never thought about, that to the ancient world what God was doing was building a temple five days of building a temple and then he brings the image of the God into the temple. Humanity. Do you understand? Do you get the picture? Do you get the image? So in the ancient mind, what they were seeing was there's a new God in town. And the impression was not just a God because I've told you before, if the God that we understand is how we have been described that he is, he is actually no different to the ancient gods of going way back, the Sumerians, the Akkadians, the Mesopotamians, because everything was primarily the gods are angry, the gods must be appeased, okay? You will be rewarded for doing good, you'll be punished for doing bad. And so appeasing sacrifice was the way that you prevented the anger of the gods. Now, we have not just moved from the Old Testament system of when they literally sacrificed animals, we have replaced that with other things. Like things like if you just fast for long enough, if you pray with enough people and say the right words, God will move, okay? Let's break that down. It all sounds very nice. But we are saying God will only move in response to prayers that are right and in enough number for the longest time, hopefully supported by the right kind of intercession and fasting. And if we do that, the gods will move. That model does not move one iota from the model of gods throughout history going all the way back to the most ancient of cultures. So therefore, we dishonor our God when we say, and, and I, I have to tell you, I absolutely... My skin crawls when I hear some of the things that are said about praying for revival and praying for a move of God. It's like, okay, stop for a minute. What does that say about this God who we say is love? Who is not willing that any should perish? Who would go to the extent of becoming human flesh to show his glory? But now we're saying that for him to move, for him to reach people, we have to do something, but we don't know just exactly what it is or the exact words that we should use or how long we should do it for or who should we should do it with. But if we just get that right, God will move. And we use out-of-context scriptures like, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, we take that from a context that does not mean what we have made it to mean. So we have to be careful that even in our practices of honouring God, that we are not in those practices honouring a system, but dishonouring the God of the system. So, so to these ancient cultures, they weren't thinking, because to them, creation stories were to a penny. Every, every religious group, every ancient religion had their creation story, and many of them have elements that, that, that mirror 
what we have in the story of Genesis. The issue is that's not a problem because he was never the point. It was never the point. But God speaks in a language that they understand to the people he is speaking to, to show them, okay, here's how you'll understand it. The process you have is that a temple is built. And then the image of the God is put in the temple. And then you measure the God by what you see in the image. Doesn't that put some wonderful grace upon humanity? And why would God want to hate humanity and punish humanity severely when humanity was the image that he put into the temple? I think he's more inclined to reconcile with what he began that we, because of partnership, have made a little bit of a mess on, but his heart is always on reconciliation. So what I'm trying to say to you here is that just like we had those join the dot things as a kid and we went dot to dot, that's what we have to do with scripture. That's what we have to do with our understanding. And I appreciate that some of you would say, but I don't have the information. That's why we're giving you the information. So you can say, oh, I can see where that dot joins this dot and joins that dot and joins this dot. And we begin to see an image emerging of who the, the God of heaven, the Abba of Jesus, the creator, the I am, truly is. So, so we don't want to draw our own picture, and that, that's a lot of our thrust at the moment. And even in, even in constructing from our deconstruction, we don't want to start to draw our own picture again uh, because of historic concepts, but we want to try and join the dots that God has given us that hopefully we'll do by faith through grace until we see the full image of what God is wanting to show us and show the world uh, through us at this time. So the temple... If you read the Bible, remains a central theme in the story, and it's there to challenge and re, uh, it's there to challenge us to reshape our distorted thinking and come back to the model. Okay, so we, I'm not going to deal with all this tonight, but just to let you know that uh, that we move towards the building of a literal temple and that gets destroyed, then we we go into exile and we move towards the building of another temple and then in Jesus' day that gets also destroyed and uh, lots of people have still missed the point and are looking for a third temple to be built in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Stupid, stupid, stupid. That was never the point. The issue is all of it was trying to bring us back to the fact that there was one initial temple, it was the whole world, and in that world there was a partnership with humanity who were to bear the image of God, and this is God's heart for the world, that we bear his image in the world in a partnership with him to bring his glory into the house, which is the world. And so all the things I could show you were pictures of that, but I'm going to jump ahead of that, uh, because this temple model keep speaking to us. I don't expect you to know that unless you know it. I don't expect you to understand that unless you have some background in, you know, the Jewish temple and all that that was. But I do want to bring you to one point in the conclusion of that, taking you from this first dot in the beginning, the world is the temple and the image in the temple is us, humanity. To realise that as a measure of proof, you can see the temple model popping up throughout the story, influencing our interpretation of the bigger picture. And here's where it brings us to. John chapter 2, verse 19 in the New Testament. Jesus stood outside the Jewish temple, the second temple, said to them, destroy this temple, 
and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. They're still locked in to pagan concepts of where God dwells, how God dwells, what has to happen for God to dwell there, how you please God, how you appease God. He's showing them you're still locked into that jolly old thinking of where my presence is and what I desire of you and what I desire to give to you. So he's talking about the temple of his body. So here's the temple model is coming up, but it's now changing in Christ. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, this, that he had said this to them, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus said, because that temple, his body, was raised three days. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll build it up. So what I want you to see is that now the temple has actually moved from the earth and humanity in the earth, which still has significance, to something even more special and more precious. And, and 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 takes it a step further. Because Paul says, don't you know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then we have in Ephesians 2 verse 21, the wider picture, in whom, this is Christ, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we have an image here that is now showing us that we have moved from, it still exists, but the earth being a temple in which we are the image of God and we are still to be that. Jesus said, Jesus said, I'm going back to heaven, but I send you. You're still the image in the temple. You're the, still the image bearers. But he said there's something much more precious because the greater temple is your own body. And there's a temple as well connected to that, which is the body of Christ. And that now God dwells within that body. He sits within that place that has been constructed. So, so this, this, is the, this is the model now that is becoming the reality that we have to understand, okay? Um, God sitting in the temple from where he rules and reigns, but it's actually us, God in us, dwelling in us. This is his dwelling place, okay? And then this is also a temple, and the world is also a temple in which we then are the image, but in us, God himself dwells, so we absolutely bear the image of the incarnate God on the inside of us. That's why the Bible uses different terminologies, but it says it's the Christ in you that is the hope of glory. Christ in you. So he is, how many of you believe he's in the temple? Which means he's where? He's in here, right? He's come to his temple, he's in here. But we also must let that image touch the temple, which also means that we must respect that the world is the temple of God. What he has created is his temple. And every living, walking, breathing human being is loved by God, created by God, and we are an image to them, and that, that's our mission, that's our ministry. That's the process of who we are. So, I want to move this on now, because something dropped in my heart that I thought wasn't connected, but I couldn't get away from it, so I, I, I sought to find the connection. Um, in, in most people's... Uh, perception, there are probably only two parts of the Bible that they would recognize if you ask them. 
Uh, one is the Lord's Prayer. You know, most people have some familiarity with that. You know, it, it's something they've been introduced to. And the other one to which they would have some familiarity, if you push them, is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Favourite go-to song, um, psalm in weddings, funerals. Um, so, so these are the two scriptures that where people have no real knowledge of Bible, these are the two things that they would potentially have some, some knowledge of. And... Um, What's interesting is that Psalm 23, which we'll read it at a moment, because I just want to make some brief comments about it. In Psalm 23, this is actually David's description of what the constructed temple looks like and operates like. Now, unless you understand that the whole Bible is talking about constructing a place for God to dwell, you would not necessarily recognize it in this psalm. But this psalm is actually King David describing what the constructed temple looks like and operates like. And so this is some constructive help into us. This is some construction to say what we are doing looks like this. God looks like this to us and God is like this to the world. And everything that we build to encompass that and to hold that together must have at its core... This kind of construction, this is what we build it around. Not the wrath of God, not the condemnation of humanity, not the punishment, but we build it around this. And I'm going to explain that just a little in a moment. Um, what's interesting that David, of course, and we are, we are going back, um, we're going back 3,000 years almost. Um, David wrote this out of his own experience and expertise, believing that God could not and would not ever treat him less than he would have, he would have treated his sheep. So Dave, David's expertise before he became a warrior and uh, showed great courage and, you know, David and Goliath and all that stuff, and then, and then he actually becomes king in Israel. Before all that, he was a shepherd. He was, he was the youngest boy and he's out looking after the, after the sheep. So David's writing this out of that experience and expertise. But he's trying to convey to us, again, in a language that they would understand to the people that he's speaking to and hopefully to us today, that God could not and would not ever treat him less than he would have treated his sheep. And that's the premise for this temple. God cannot and will not treat us less than a shepherd would have treated his sheep. Okay. So we're in a pretty good place. There is a lot to be grateful for and thankful for. It's something to smile about because we get a revelation of how God treats us and how the temple that he has built always brings this revelation. This is how God always treats us and always deals with us. So let me read the psalm a little bit, and just a couple of comments. Okay, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now this is the shepherd saying, the Lord is my shepherd. So do you get the, the connection? He understands this language and he's saying, as I was to my sheep, God is to me. And, and so he makes a definitive statement. He says, because of that, I shall not want. So David's point being, my sheep never wanted. So if I get to a place where I want, God is not my shepherd. But I know that God is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. We might have to get to the place 
where we have the provision, just like you lead the sheep to pasture and you lead the sheep to water. But the promise is, I shall not want. He said, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Okay? I, I like a little bit of that make me because uh, most of us, because we have a, a stressful understanding of the kingdom of God, don't want to lie down. We don't think we should lie down. We don't think we're entitled to lie down. But David says one of the first things you've got to learn is to lie down in green pastures. Just give it a break. Because he is speaking against the pagan concept that you have to please the gods. You have to earn what you have from the gods. Now, again, I've, I've told you that I, I've been around long enough in evangelical speak to know that we mask that in clever language. You know, we mask it and then we find, you know, so we have messages about, you know, why God is the healer and then 57 reasons why you're not healed. You know, we, we, we mask things. We, we, we mask things and we don't appreciate that what we're trying to do is get God to do something. The moment we try to get God to do something, we're saying God is not willing and we have to earn it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so when we do connect, communicate, relate to God, it mustn't come from that kind of thing that we have to try and get God to do X. Otherwise, it's an issue of our work. So, so, so David says there's this revelation. I used to make my sheep lie down in the pasture so would it not therefore be true that in the reconstructing of what we do there has to be an instruction that we lay we lay down in the pastures that that God has given us we we accept this as a place of safety because we are not responsible for our own safety the sheep are not responsible to keep themselves safe from the wolf the shepherd takes responsibility to keep them safe from the wolf the sheep has to lie down where the shepherd is. And when we do that, there's a message that we can lie down, we can rest. So he says, he also leads me beside the still waters. Drink. And I love this. He restores my soul. There is a restorative process that should be going on all the time. He restores my soul. He's putting me back together. Uh, that, that's construction, isn't it? And uh, leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, now of course, you know, all thinking would say that means that he's leading us in paths where we do everything right. But that would, that would show a total ignorance of biblical godly righteousness. Godly righteousness is a revelation, not, not an action. Okay? It's about, as, as Paul put it in Corinthians, that in the gospel the righteousness is revealed, which is by faith from first to last. Why is the righteousness revealed? Because our righteousness is the righteousness of God given to us, bestowed upon us. God sees us through the righteousness of God. He sees us through that in Christ. That's another story of how we explain that. But being led in paths of righteousness is not about, you know, so I sought to see everything that I could stop doing and everything I ought to be doing because that's, you know, the path of righteousness, of the narrow path. Um, it actually is in paths that are screaming out to us every time, the revelation of God's righteousness for us, that by his grace and through his spirit, we have been declared righteous. And he uses legal, John uses legal language to say that in John 16. He says, he says, he says that, um, uh, what's the thing about convict the world of, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. Now, because we put the word sin first, I always heard 
in my spirit, even though I heard righteousness with my ears, in my spirit I heard unrighteousness. The Holy Spirit comes. So I lived my life growing up that the reason of the Holy Spirit was to convict me of all the unrighteousness that was in me. Uh, when actually the sin he talks about is that the only sin that counts is the one of unbelief because you didn't believe that the Lord is your shepherd. You wouldn't believe it. Well, I haven't earned it. I'm not good enough. Nobody asked you to be good enough. Sheep don't become part of a sheepfold because they're good enough. They're part of a sheepfold because either they were born into the sheepfold or the shepherd brought them into the sheepfold and they were chosen. Every one of us have been chosen. We are chosen. And so it's not, the, it's not the, the intensity of the sheep trying to be a good sheep that makes it the sheep that the shepherd cares about. So in John 16, when it says convict of sin, it says the sin of unbelief, you have not believed in me. What have we not believed? That we have been made righteous because of him. So he said the Holy Spirit comes to convict us, not of unrighteousness, but of righteousness. And what he's meaning by that is when you are have a conviction that is legal language that happens in a court when all the evidence has been gathered and the judge has made a ruling over you and you are about to be convicted well he said here's what God does in legal language he has brought the gavel down and he has convicted every one of you righteous and there is no appeal against that sentence you have been convicted righteous. And so the judgment, he says, is against the prince of this world who now stands condemned. Or every adversarial power, every satanistic power that comes to undermine the gift of righteousness that you have, uh, that, that feeds on the unbelief that we rise about who we are, he's come to... To, to judge that, not to judge you. But the gavel has come down and you have been convicted. You're, you're a convicted criminal today. And, and your, 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 your crime is righteousness. Guilty. You are righteous. Guilty. So I don't feel righteous. Not up to you. It's up to who, the one who has the power to judge when he brings the gavel down. You have stopped trying to appeal against the sentence. Because the sentence is life, more abundantly, that is yours because the judge has already said, you have been convicted righteous. So he restores my soul. He leads me on paths of righteousness. Why does he do it? For his name's sake. Because he's bringing honour to his name when we, in our state, admit and confirm that we have a righteousness that is not of ourselves. And, and then, of course, here's some of the most quoted helpful things. Yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which, which means, obviously, that we don't avoid whatever the valley of the shadow of death may be to us, representative, whether that's circumstance in life or whether that's our physical passing, which all of us are, you know, heading that way. He says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and of course the, the thing is, it's wonderful, it doesn't say, though I finish up in the valley of the shadow of death, it says, though I walk through... You know, the, the construct is that you are walking through it, right? It is not a dead-end alley. It's not something that can keep you there unless you choose to put up camp in the valley of the shadow of death, which, which many of us do because, as I said on, on Saturday, we, we start to fight against the gentle hand and, and we hold the reins tightly and then mystery and miracle don't happen, so we tend to put our tent down in the valley of the shadow of death. But he says, no, this is the construct. You walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. 
Why? Because you are with me and your rod and staff, they comfort me. You are with me right in the middle of it and we're walking through and we're coming out the other side. And then he says, of course, this doesn't relate as much to us now, but in the language then it was very powerful. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I I like this because what it's saying is, when all hell is going on, God invites you to pull up a chair and sit at the table. He doesn't say, look, you know, um, all this is going on for your enemies, you need to go fight your enemies. He said, here's how you deal with your enemies. You pull up a chair to my table, which of course is representative to us in Jesus' life as the communion meal. We pull up a chair to the table in the presence of our enemies, not fighting our enemies, realising that the more we sit at his table, the less power our enemies have over us to dominate us. Our power is not in fighting them. Our power is is in ignoring them and sitting at the Lord's table and feasting on the goodness that he gives to us. And he said, I prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. And you anoint my head with oil. That was all about anointing always gave authority and rule. Okay, whether you're a priest or a king. And he's saying, if you sit at the table, rather than trying to fight the enemies, what will happen is you'll find that you've been anointed with oil. You have an authority and you have a rule that begins to flow. And, uh, and my cup runs over, which of course is the wonderful picture that God's not only going to fill your cup, but he's going to keep filling it. So actually, if you don't get on drinking, uh, it'll just keep running over. But it, it's the principle of more than enough, okay? More than enough. And we have to live through every challenge and every, every, everything that rises up against our prov- place of provision, we have to live in the place of the running over cup. And so the promise of God is not that we will have a full cup, that we'll have enough, but that our cup will run over, which means that we have an abundance that flows over to all who need it, that our supply will never be diminished when we give our supply, because our cup is always running over. So, so this, this is what David's talking about from his understanding to say this is what the constructed temple looks like and operates like, and this is what this house and our life needs to look like and operate like, and that's what we've got to build. Whatever we develop from this point as we have deconstructed, it has to look like this and it has to feel like this in the context that David says it's because I know how my sheep felt when I was around as their shepherd and so I want you to feel that way when, when the Lord is your shepherd and, and, and is, is present with you. So then he goes on to say that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. This, this is one of my favourite verses. I've said this to you many times before. That if this is true, goodness and mercy follow close by me, then any time that I ever fall, I don't get run over by condemnation and guilt and judgment and rejection. I get run over by goodness and mercy. Because he's following me. It's there all the time. I, I love about this in, in the Hebrew... Um, that, that word mercy is the word ben chesed. Um, how many of you know what, what the word ben is in Hebrew whenever you see ben? Son, right? Chesed is loving kindness. 
So if we were to look at this literally in Hebrew, it would say, surely goodness, we won't use the word for goodness because it's not relevant, and Ben Hesed, the son of loving kindness, will follow me all the days of my life. That gives a little bit more fullness to it, doesn't it? Goodness and the son, Ben Hesed, the son of loving kindness, follow me all the days of my life. This is not an abstract idea, that's why I said this is, this is a temple idea because the Ben Hesed, the son of loving kindness, right? The God incarnate, the living presence is here in the temple. The Ben Hesed, the son of loving kindness, follows me all the days of my life. Goodness and the son of loving kindness are what are following us. And it says it'll happen all the days of my life. This is, this is the, the temple promise. That's one of the reasons I believe that, that what God did in the beginning is still working and it's still active and many things we could say about that. But then David says this, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In other words, this is a temple experience, right? I don't think David's particularly talking about I'm going to heaven because if you understand the Jewish mind, they didn't have the concepts that we had about heaven. They understood that in death there were two places of holding, but they didn't have the concepts we have superimposed because we didn't join the dots. We, we drew a picture over it, uh, you know, which, which some artists have reproduced, um, like Dante with his Inferno. And, uh, you know, when you go to the Sistine Chapel in Rome and see Dante's Inferno, that is not joining the dots of Scripture. That's drawing a picture over the dots of Scripture that is influenced by violence, pagan thinking, misunderstandings of God, and through culture superimposing onto the God something that wasn't there. When actually what's happening is there is a temple construction going on. There is a, there is a, a God looking to be in the temple and willing to be in the temple in his image in every way. So David's really saying, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It didn't mean I'm staying in a building or the tent that he'd erected or the building that Solomon would build. He meant that in this whole thing, this is the house of the Lord and there is a presence in here. Uh, that is blessing and it's a forever experience it's a it's an aeons upon aeons it's an age upon age experience so if you brought that now into some new testament thinking you could connect this to um uh to john chapter one um that you know we beheld his glory the glory of the only begotten of the father god incarnate in the temple in the world now bearing the image of god back into the temple to redeem the temple, the world. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Do you understand why those terms are used now? God in Christ was reconciling the world unto himself. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, again, our narrow thinking says the world equals people in a certain way. But actually, the world means that God so loves the temple that he constructed, that he's now putting his presence back in the temple and he's doing it in human form in Christ so that he can transition it into another dimension, which is the dimension of spirit, which we had now lost, but he is now restoring so we can live in the fullness of the revelation that David was talking about 
in Psalm 23. So we are, if, if goodness and mercy in David's words, goodness and Ben-Hesed, goodness and the son of loving kindness, we're following him all the days of our lives, then we are inseparably attached to goodness and mercy. Inseparably attached to it. And, and I really, I, I let some of this slip and I have gone backwards on some of this stuff, but I'm reigniting it in my life. I am inseparably attached to goodness and mercy. Right? I can't get it wrong for getting it right. You know, it's a divine accident that is going to happen to you. You are inseparably attached to goodness and mercy. And all these things David talks about in this psalm are the portion, the inheritance, the manifestation of being inseparably attached to goodness and mercy, which John calls grace and truth. Okay, it's the same thing. He calls it grace and truth. And remember I said that word truth is, is the same word that we use for, for hallmark. So, so when you hallmark silver or hallmark gold, you stamp it and you are saying, this is the genuine article. This is authentic. So when it says he was full of grace and truth, it would be very accurate to say he was full of authentic grace, right? Hallmarked grace, genuine grace. So the truth is not a balancer that says, yes, but you've got to know the truth to balance out the grace. Otherwise, you'll get too carried away with the grace. The truth authenticates the wonder of the grace. So we're inseparably attached to goodness and mercy and grace and truth. I hope this is lifting your spirit a little bit. Okay. So let me, let me bring this um, to where I want to finish it. And it leaves us a little time, just if you've got any questions or, or comments. How uh, many of you heard the Paul Scanlon uh, message the other week? One of the things Paul said on that was very interesting when he talked about David who wrote Psalm 23. Because David's journey was incredible really because he was the youngest son of a, uh, a Hebrew sheep farmer. And uh, he was probably illegitimate. Now I can't 100% prove that. Um, a lot of Jewish um, legend holds to that truth. Um, that, that David, although they were his brothers, he was not a brother of the same mother. And that in fact, you know, David was born illegitimately to his mother. Um, one of the reasons being that, that when it came time for God had said that the then king um, Saul was going to be replaced by a man after God's own heart. Samuel the prophet was sent to David's household, which was the house of Jesse, who was David's father. And it says, Jesse called all his sons together, and Samuel went round all the sons, and, and he said, no, this isn't the one. This is not the one. This is not the one. And he had to ask Jesse, do you have any more sons? And he said, well, I just have one more, and he's out in the field looking after the sheep. Um, one of the reasons for believing David was probably illegitimate is that on this important moment, he was not included with the rest of the family or the other brothers. He was like, uh, he's just David, you know, he's just, he was given the lowest job looking after the sheep. There was stuff about David that meant that he probably carried some shame, some disconnection, some rejection, the kind of things we've talked about. And I find that a blessing because I've told you my story, how, how my uh, my grandfather was born in the workhouse in Emsworth, 
to uh, my great-grandmother who got pregnant and was rejected by a family and that our name Chapman is my great-grandmother's name because when my great-grandmother married to a guy called Haywood, they did not, he did not adopt my grandfather to be a Haywood. He remained a Chapman. And of course, in those days, my grandfather was born in 1901, a girl getting pregnant and you were the bastard child of that girl, there was shame on your life. There was shame. Uh, and so I know that, that historically I can see the areas where I have carried that legacy of shame through the name Chapman because, because it was never adopted into, into acceptance. So I, I relate quite a bit to, to where David was, but the fact that it was David who, who was the one who God chose... He was not excluded because of the story behind his birth or the, or the story of his life or the mistakes that he has made or the shame that hung over him or the rejection. Um, in fact, I, I, think, I think the lesson of Scripture is that God was showing, that's, that's where he starts right there. For those of you who think, I'm not qualified, I'm not good enough, I'm not lovely enough, I'm just horrible. That's where God's always started the story to say, you're all in through this. This is where grace reaches. But David, David when he was still looking after the sheep, there was this old shenanigans of, you know, the story of David and Goliath. And... Um, you know, Goliath, this Philistine giant who's challenging with his warriors, the Israeli army, and they're scared to fight him because he's too strong, he's too big, he's militarily too powerful. And uh, David hears about this, and so he takes, some, he takes some food for his brothers from his father. That's his excuse. You know, boys find an excuse to be where they shouldn't be. Um, and uh, he hears the giant because he goes to the king, David. I mean, you know, we... He's always drawn as like this little kid, you know, like a 10-year-old boy, which is complete nutter nonsense. Um, but, you know, he was, he was probably a teenager and he was quite smart because he told the king, he said, listen, I've had situations where a lion tried to take the sheep and I killed the lion. In fact, he said, here's why I took it by its beard and killed it. I mean, you know, he's no novice. And he said, he said when a bear came to take the sheep, I killed the bear. This, this boy's no novice. I mean, he's... He's already, um, you know, he's already found some strength. But, but when he gets there, he, of course, he waxes lyrical about the, the Philistine. I'll fight the giant. Just send me out. I'll, I'll do him in for you. Uh, and, uh, of course, the story is he, he actually does. And, you know, that's a wonderful, wonderful story in its own right with a lot of implications. But, but what's interesting, I, I, I'd never seen this until Paul Scanlon mentioned it, uh, when David was appealing to King Saul to let him be involved, let me, let me at this, uh, he makes an interesting statement because he says in, in 1 Samuel 17 verse 34, David said to Saul, your servant himself used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I... Now, what's interesting is he'd just literally come from looking after the sheep because his brothers said, with who have you left those few sheep that you were looking after in the desert? He said, I've left them with one of the, the servants to come here. He literally had come from looking after the sheep, but his spirit, in his spirit, he now knew that something had radically changed in his life. It would never be the same again. So he was now not talking about himself as who he was. He's now talking about himself that I will never be that again. I used to keep sheep. 
I absolutely love that. I think it's amazing because it's like David doesn't really know what the future holds, but he knows it doesn't hold looking after sheep anymore. I don't have to go back there. I don't have to perform that task. I don't have to be that. God is leading me to something bigger and I've already decided that I ain't going back. Right? I'm not going back. We're not going back there. And I can honestly say about The Rock, we used to be lots of things. We used to think lots of things. We used to do lots of things. But we ain't going back there because we're having a moment where we're meeting another point in destiny. And our, our declaration now is, yeah, you might remember us as the shepherds looking after the Jesse's sheep. But I'm telling you, we used to be that. We used to do that. We used to think that, but, but now we're on a different course. Now we're on a different trajectory, and it's all connected to the temple. It's all connected to the image in the temple. David knew he bore the image. He said, send me, I've got the image on me, and we can do this. And of course, it brought an amazing change in the history of the whole nation. So, I want to do one last thing and then it gives some room. It's just 29 minutes past eight. So, it gives us some room to, uh, if, if some of you want to make some comment and encourage. Um, I thought what Chris said the uh, week before last and, and what she showed was extremely powerful and very poignant. Now, um, I'm not as nervous now as I used to be about some things, but, you know, when Chris mentioned about, about uh, uh, Buddhism... At one time, I would have been very nervous because the way I was raised was actually, we're not afraid of anything, but we're afraid of everything. You know, so greater is he who is in, as I was told, quoting scripture, always King James scripture, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But I thought if I even read two words of the horoscope, that I was empowering demons to bring destruction in my life. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. At the name of Jesus, every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord, that all things are yours in Christ. You know, whether things above, whether things below, natural, spiritual, all, all is yours, Paul said. But if I read two words from the horoscope, and for Chris and I, some of us who were raised a bit more serious, you know, just to set foot in a movie theatre or a cinema, we, we, I was afraid... I was told that Jesus was coming back very soon. And also that Jesus would come back as judge. And I, I'm serious, I kid you not, I'm not, Chris will vouch for me, I'm not exaggerating. Uh, I believe that if Jesus came back through the clouds and I was sat in the pictures, that there was a good possibility that I wouldn't get to heaven. How sad is that? But I was really sincere about that and very passionate about trying to live right for God but you think which God was I living right for which God was that this this intimidating God who'd get on the back of a young kid to be so afraid that in my first church in South Kirkby in 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 West Yorkshire South well the border of South Yorkshire I I left there when I was six years old to come to York but as a, a young boy in there, during the services, I can remember in the ceiling there was a grill, a metal grill. And uh, as, as a five-year-old kid, I'm taking it all in. Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, he's coming back to judge. 
And, uh, you know, woe betide you if he doesn't find you worthy when he comes back to judge. But, of course, it's not by works. God loves you and you have grace and it's by faith. But woe betide if he comes back. So I'm five years old and I would be playing in church and I'm figuring, okay, Jesus is coming back because they said he is. And when he comes back, it's really scary because he's coming back as this judge person and he's going to judge you for your sins, you know, which of course I'd done lots as a five-year-old. Um, all kinds of terrible. And I'm thinking, okay, so the only way to get in here if he's coming from the sky is through a hole. And the only hole in this building is that grill. So if Jesus comes back, he's coming back through that grill. Now, I'm sincerely, this is the thoughts of a five-year-old boy who would sit in church with one eye on that grill because I'm thinking Jesus is coming back and that's where he's coming if he comes and I'm in here. So I better, if I see him coming through that grill, I better stop playing and start listening. It's a five-year-old mind. What kind of God is that? See, those are the concepts that some of us have grown up with and then you wonder why we've gone to great lengths to deconstruct. If, if it was only for some of us, thank you for being gracious to let us to let us walk that journey because we want to give you the God who is not polluted and, and, and distorted by some of those images, which is why we've gone back to the dots in the beginning and said, you know what, maybe we need to put away the drawing that we've done and go back and start joining the dots and realise the image we thought we saw actually is not right. But well, let's, watch, let's see the lines on which the dots move and work from there. So I, th I think what Chris showed was great. And what also interests me is that if she had said these are the four tenets of Buddhism, if she hadn't told you it was Buddhism but said I want to share with you four tenets and told you those four things, instead of saying, oh, it scares me a bit because that's Buddhism, we'd have all been saying, that's amazing, that's wonderful. You know, if you've been around for a long time, amen, bless God, that's fantastic. It was only because we were told it was Buddhism that it becomes a problem when actually the four things were very helpful and I don't care whether a Buddhist understood that or a Hindu or a Muslim or a Christian, those are four good things and the Bible says all good gifts around us come from the Father of lights. So the good things, the stupid bits come from people, the good bits have all come from God. Uh, in any religious form, all the good bits came from God himself. But what she did show was this... Um, this amazing thing that the Buddhists do, which I think is a wonderful picture called the mandala, which is this sand sculpture that, that they build in a circle because of the circle of life, time being cyclical. And uh, it staggered me that they, these Buddhist monks work intricately with the sand, the coloured sands, to, to create that amazing image that is a representation of their journey. It's a representation of who they are and what they are believing. And um, it, it's a representation of how they see the world at that time and their place in the world. And uh, the artistic content of it is just staggering. You know, and when you think of how many hours they worked on that, but then to see that their principle is they all gather round and then they push all that stuff that they have spent endless hours of intricately working on, being, being so cautious and careful, they divide it, put a line through it and then push it all in the middle. So the image of everything that was is now just a pile of sand in the middle and then they take that away and put it in the river. 
so that it can go back to the riverbed and just be part of the process of life all over again. Now you say, well, what's the significance of that? The significance of that is this, that we are often unwilling to push that sand of our past experience and the picture that was something we created from where we were and what we thought and what we knew to push it back in the middle and put it in the river of God's forgetfulness to go back to where it came in the process of life and begin to build again. So I've said this because in the positive thing, where we are at is that we are, we are as a house um, in a place where I think our mandala that we have built particularly over 26 years of my leadership, is getting pushed into the middle. It's time. It's time to say it's precious. It was worked on with passion, with purpose, with blood, sweat and tears, with sincerity, with intricacy. And uh, there have been some lovely pictures in there, some lovely images that have been created. But there comes a time... When if we're not careful, we begin to worship that. What I like about the Buddhist principle is what they have created could never become God because they said what we have created, we are prepared to give it all away. Why? Not because this is the end, but because this is the beginning. Because we are starting to make something new. So I want to just to run that little bit of the, the video um, to close this out because I think it's a really important insight on our journey and I hope you've grasped tonight that what we're saying is the model from the beginning has been God builds a temple. That's always God's desire. He builds a temple to put his image in the temple and we are now being built again. We're joining the dots to build a temple so God's image can be in the temple but the greatest thing is that we are the temple and God is in us, which means that we sit right under the power of Psalm 23. And goodness and the son of loving kindness are following us in this process and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So let's have a little look at this and then we've got a few minutes just if anybody's got any questions. powerful isn't it so here's the God question are you prepared to do that 
Okay, anybody got any? Got a few minutes. Anybody got any questions or or any comments you'd like to just add in? I'm happy for that to happen. If not. Um, yeah, it, it was it was written much later, about the time of Hosea, when the the priests were gathering stuff together. We know it definitely wasn't written by Moses for many practical reasons. But one thing that is interesting is that um, because we're used to modern technology, our brains don't don't. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Not recall. Retain. Our brains don't retain information um, in the same way. You know, it's the classic lie. I don't need to read that down. I don't need to write that down. I'll remember it. How many of you have ever done that? Don't need to write that down. I'll remember it. Of course, you never do. Because actually, even, even the makeup of the way we think has, has changed over time because we have AIDS to... to not A-I-D-S. Okay. We have... <laughs> It's like, you think, I'm hearing this thinking somebody could take a sound bite of that. This was on Wednesday night. We have AIDS. Um, <laughs> we, we, we have things to aid our recollection where historically, when you didn't have those things, the oral traditions were actually not as suspect as you would think they were. Things actually got passed along very accurately and very precisely in oral tradition. You know, when you think if your mind is connected that the only way that we can retain this is to remember it, you develop the mind to remember and to retain. And, uh, you know, of course, people now have these incredible memories of use some of the same principles to, you know, and they can remember, you know, numbers and all kinds of stuff. So, so although Moses didn't write it and it was oral tradition, Oral tradition then was very reliable. I mean, when you look how that worked and measure that against even, even facts, it's quite incredible. But yeah, it was written much later, Debbie. So we do know, as I've said before, that on parts of those writings, there were most definitely agendas that were coming to the fore. But I've stopped worrying too much about that because like I showed you the dots at the beginning, I realized a lot of what I thought was the important bit of the Bible wasn't the important thing within the story. A bit like, I don't care how long it took to make the earth. I, it, I am, why should we be even bothered? It doesn't matter. What I'm interested now is what, is what in the context of that culture and those writings is the meaning of what is being said. And what I've discovered is, is that the Bible is rich in meaning, but we've emphasize too much the, the, the activities rather than the, the meanings behind and within. And that's why I wanted to bring what I brought about the, the Moses thing, you know, the, the Genesis thing. Anybody else? Yeah. Well... If if you do, we'll put a lid on can. So this is probably just the way my head's wired, as you know. But when you said the sheep aren't responsible, there's almost this. Uh, <laughs> this is my buzzword at the moment, isn't it? Um, there's almost this paradox, isn't it? Because we're not 
we've got to relax, like you said, on Saturday and let the shepherd do the shepherd's job. But we're also the temple. So we need to shine and be the, the image. So I kind of almost want a new word for the word responsible that has none of the negative connotations yeah, and, and a really that. positive one. I think, yeah, I think that's a very good point, Jenny. Um, I'd also say, so we, for some reason in our house and in our conversations over the last week or so, uh, metaphor has been a word that's kept coming up. <laughs> you know what a metaphor is? It's something that illustrates a, a deeper point. And of course, a mixed metaphor means that you are using illustrations that are contradictory illustrations, but actually describe the same thing. And um, a lot of the Bible, you have to understand metaphorically, you know, uh, otherwise you're not going to understand that culturally what was being shown was God was building a temple and putting the image of the God into the temple. All you think it's a story about how the, how the world was made. So within those metaphors, I agree. So I used the, I used the metaphor connected to Psalm 23 about the sheep are not responsible for what the shepherd is responsible for. However, the sheep need to be still responsible sheep because then you can throw other metaphors into the story, which what about the sheep that was lost? About the 99 that get left in the wilderness? Um, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So there, there are other pictures that relate to other stories. So, you know, sheep, sheep in, in, in the cultural context of scripture, a shepherd never heard sheep. Sheep follow the shepherd. That's why John said, which it doesn't make a lot of sense to us because we're used to herding, you know, get the dogs out, get the, get the ATV out and herd the sheep. But, but when John wrote in John 10 and said, uh, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, was because herding sheep was a, it'd be like, do what to sheep? What? Say What? Because to them, what happened is you developed a bond with the sheep where the thing that, that held the sheep, if the sheep needed to know what to do, they heard your voice and they followed the shepherd. And it's incredible to watch. If you ever, you, you can Google it and watch uh, goat herds and sheep herds in the Middle East following the shepherd. It's incredible. Now, of course, you still get the, you know, there's always one, you know, that does the, you know, does that, I'm going to do my own thing, which is why, again, taking the metaphor, Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Well, all sheep don't go astray. But he said, all we like sheep have gone astray, turn everyone to his own way. He's not talking about all sheep do that, but he's using the same metaphor to say, some sheep are stubborn and have a tendency to mosey off. And Jesus' parable about the lost sheep relates to that, that the sheep didn't uphold its responsibility to stay near the shepherd and listen to the voice of the shepherd. But the wonder is, when the sheep wanders off, the shepherd leaves the, the ones he thinks are safe and he goes to find that one. He's more interested in recovery. So he's not worried about the others. So all these still blend with it to say there is, a, there is a responsibility. The responsibility is to make sure you hear the voice of the shepherd. And in hearing the voice of the shepherd, you follow... And he's responsible as the shepherd for the sheep herd. It's not the sheep have to have a council of sheep to say, now what should we do as sheep? So there's supposed to be within this a very organic, natural process that again, because we don't have the Im imagery of, 
of Eastern culture where this grows up, sometimes we can, we can get all confused. Does that help, Jen? Is that... Pete, have you got just... Yeah, Dave. Yeah. It's on, Dave, I think. Yeah, yeah. On. Right, just uh, as you're talking about sheep, and we're talking about, you're talking about uh, the Rock Church moving in a direction. So I'm thinking about sheep. How are the sheep then, at the moment, the church, the established church, who take the Bible literally? And are we, the Rock of York, perceived as being wolves in sheep clothing? And if that's the case, how are we going to shed that, that wolf-like image? Um, yeah, it's a big, big question, I think. Um, I, I would say, first of all, on the, the first point, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So in the wider church, those who are really sheep are the ones that are listening to the voice. And again, some of that then comes down, how do we know that? Well, we've got to have a little knowledge about joining the dots, you know, to see who's following who. Um, there's also in the context here in, in the rock, if, if, if I am a shepherd to this house, then the same principle follows. My sheep will hear my voice and they'll follow me. Um, and, and that's part of it. Now, um, I think it's too big a question for me in a sense to say who are the sheep and who are the wolves uh, because, um, you know, would some people perceive the sheep to be wolves and some people perceive the wolves to be sheep, you know. So, um, yes, I think in that context there would be a rejection. I don't think you would find many people who would be bold enough to say that because then they have to be accountable for what they said. But there will be people who think that we are not being led right or following the right voice. And uh, that's something we have to and have sought to deal with simply over the process of time. So it's not a matter of we will argue with you to make you believe our point it's we will by the way we live and how we follow Jesus and the grace that we live in and the kindness that we show and the attempts that we make for reconciliation show which shepherd that we're we're following so I think that that's where I sit on that Dave you know if that helps a little bit yeah that yeah yeah Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Which is my my main my main point on that is um, is that the the church of the day their main argument against Jesus was the Bible says this but you're saying that so the question would be so who's right it wasn't an issue of trying to prove those people wrong, but it was an issue at least of having an openness to say, here's the word made flesh, and they're using scripture to prove that he's not Jesus. You know I mean? When you look back at it, you think that is ridiculous. But the same thing, that's why you know, we, we've tried to encourage ourselves as a house that uh, you know, the Bible is not, it's not a book full of hand grenades that we take and use to blow up our enemies and those who argue with us. You know, here's my bomb because I have this verse, you know, boom. You know, and see who's le last man left standing. And uh, I, because of those reasons, I refer to the Bible 
less and less because that coming from those traditions, uh, Jesus said, we'll know you are my disciples by your love for one another. So I, I've tried to more emphasize how I live and how I love in the name of Jesus than actually, um, you know, the Bible itself. Because again, what we've taught, you know, Paul said, look, here's the problem. Because Paul had the same problem. When Paul started to bring what they called his gospel, uh, he was resisted even by those who had begun to believe in the church. And so you, Paul's letters very often, uh, Galatians, Colossians, all this, are dealing with those kind of kind of problems because they were saying that, that um, you know, he was all screwed up. But Paul wrote, listen, here's the deal. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Whether it's written on stone or whether it's written in ink on paper, the letter kills. So, 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 the Bible itself will always kill people. and never The Spirit brings life. Now, when the Spirit takes the words that are in the Bible, that's a totally different matter. That is. But very often what you're talking about, Dave, is it's not the Spirit taking words in the Bible in love to show you the kindness of God. It's words taken to say, you're wrong. Yeah. That's lovely, Dave. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, that Pete's just, yeah, do you want to say something on? Well, okay. Yeah, because, yeah, Dave was asking about whether, well, I think that was online, wasn't it? Because I was on the mic. Go on. Go ahead. Do you want the mic? Pete's got the mic. Okay. Chris has just got a comment on that last point, and then Pete's, Pete's, got, a, Pete's got a question. Um, the issue of, Wolves in sheep's clothing is an interesting one because you, it's basically a disguise, isn't it? So basically yeah. you look like a sheep, but then what happens when you get close? The point is you are going to be uh, devoured because wolves attack. So the difference between a sheep basically is a sheep doesn't have that attitude within it to, to attack and devour. Yeah. Wouldn't that be yeah. right? So in essence, and Dave said it at the end about we, we counteract those questions by saying God is love and, and are loving. And this is how I would then say that we figure out who are the sheep in sheep's clothing. It's not just because yeah. of literal um, standing by, by the Bible, but it's when a person starts out as being loving until you hit the thing. Yeah that suddenly they don't like, yeah. and they, they, then they will attack like a wolf. So, for instance, and I mean, I'm online with a lot of people who will be all, you know, the Bible, listen, take it literally and all this and the other, and then you mention something about politics or, uh, for instance, you know, conservative politics in, in America or liberalism, and immediately the wolf comes out because instead of there being love for the other there's immediate a desire to yeah. say, I'm going to devour you. Um, so that, that must be the measure. Um, so it's not the literal, you know, yeah. uh, taking of the Bible. It's got to be, where is it where we start to stop being Christ-like and actually start to say, I can devour you. So even yeah. over the issue of LGBTQ, yeah. whatever. And all the others. All the other letters, know. which are yeah. probably... So, for instance, she can all be very loving and God loves everybody and this, that and the other until and then the wolf tends to show its true colours because then they... So once that 
if you find that the, the, the wolf starts to appear once you overstep the mark of what they call their Christian principles and yeah. it's no, no further. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah, we'll take one more from Pete. Yes, I think it's a two-sided thing. You know, people talk about wolves in sheep's clothing, but the question is, what about sheep in wolves' clothing? Thanks. Um, as you know, we've just come back from Wales, a country blessed with more than its fair share of sheep. Um, so we see a lot of sheep in our travels. We go up into the hills a lot, and there are always sheep around. Quite often you're going through farm gates and over cattle grids, so you're going to open moorland, and there'll be sheep everywhere. And there's always a few sheep that are near the road. So when they see the car or the you know, camper van, whatever it is we're in at the time, coming towards them near the road, all they have to do is step back. But what they do is they immediately see this thing coming towards them or near them, and they immediately run down the middle of the road. And they will keep running until they're exhausted. And only then, when they've tried to get away as much as they can, will they actually stop and step aside and let you go past. I mean, A, they're stupid because they see something which is not going to harm them. All they have to do is step aside and let it pass them by and they're safe. But no, they panic because something new is coming and they try and run away through their own efforts you know, and, and get away from it. All the rest of the sheep, which could be quite close to them, but actually you know, a yard away on the pasture itself, will just sit and look at them. But the sheep will see you first, down the road, run as fast as I can because I can get away from this. I don't want anything to do with it. That's the first thing. You're talking about the shepherd um, and the sheep following them. If you see some of the, the farmers now, they've all got these big pickup things like Beth's got, mm. um, and they take round salt blocks in the back of the cars for the sheep to lick. Now, when the sheep see the farmer with the salt block, they all run along behind the, the van, ready for when the salt block comes out of the back of the van for them to drink. So they still follow and know the shepherd. Um, so they're quite safe to do that. But really, uh, I mean, sheep... Basically, they panic over nothing. They think something new's coming, so they, they run away from it rather than embracing it and saying, oh, look, something's new coming. It'll pass me by or I can follow it because it might have salt on the back. Well, it's wonderful that we have a good shepherd. <laughs> you, know, it's, it's, uh, you know, you start to realise the, the significance of the dots of terminology, even in Scripture, that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd... So we know we've got a good shepherd. So I appreciate you being here and I pray that um, all the manifest expressions of what David described in his words as, as the temple being built in Psalm 23 will be yours and that you'll, uh, you'll live in the reality that, that goodness and the son of loving kindness are following you, grace and truth, all the days of your life. And that, and that in this temple, and in this temple, and that we're in the house of the Lord forever, and that goodness is following you. So be blessed, and uh, we'll see you on Saturday. We're done. Okay. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.